This week on The Futurist, Byron Reese. I think that there'll be a billion people on a billion planets, each empowered to live their best possible life. And I, I think we're so close to that, we don't realize it. Hey there, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and this week in the co-host chair is Miss Metaverse, Katie King. Hi, Katie. Great to see you. Hey, great to be back. Where are you at now these days? You folks travel so much, I can't keep track. Hey, I'm in North Carolina currently. So uh, yeah, doing great over here. Big tech hub and it's booming. Did you have a fine Thanksgiving? Yeah, it was wonderful. You know, can't believe uh, it's the end of the year already. It's wild. It's incredible. The year went so fast. And what an exciting year filled with events. We're going to have to do a wrap-up show very soon to cover all that. But before we do that, we have a great guest on today's show, someone I've been excited to talk to for a long time. I was so thrilled to see his name in email and happy to meet him. Our guest today is Byron Reese. Byron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. We're thrilled to have you. So for the folks who are listening, Byron is a man who wears many, many hats. He is a well-renowned futurist. Uh, he's, he's in demand as a public speaker around the world. That's partly because he is such an excellent communicator on the subject. He's the author of a number of books, including The Fourth Age, one of my personal favorite books. And I'm not making this up for the people who are listening. I'm dead serious. The Fourth Age is so well-written. It's so accessible. It's so practical. Uh, he approaches the future from a practical standpoint. We're going to zero back in on that. But Byron, beyond that, you're more than just a person who's a pundit or somebody who forecasts. You actually take action. You're a man of action. You're an entrepreneur. Can you tell us a little bit about your business aspects? Well, I only write from 6 to 8 a.m. every morning. And then the rest of the day, I'm uh, earning a paycheck. Uh, And right now, I have uh, an AI company that is trying to use artificial intelligence to figure out uh, what people want. And then we make those things. That's interesting. So it's even better than Google search where people tell you what they're looking for. You can actually predict or forecast or anticipate. That is the hope. That's an interesting puzzle to solve. Very cool. Um, And how do you go about doing that? So for the folks who are listening, we always like to talk about methodology. Uh, And every person we speak to has a different methodology for either forecasting or inventing the future. So what happens? Do you just wake up one day and say, gee, wouldn't it be great to have an AI that can predict my needs? And then how do you start? What's step one in that process? It involves chicken and trails. <laughs> yes, casting <laughs> casting, and making weird yes. incantations. No, I, 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 guess, uh, I guess I think about the future. So futurists are not people who I think in general uh, – try to guess what's going to happen. I think there are people who try to figure out why things happen the way they do. Uh, and and I start with an assumption that we have one uh, in, in implicit bias. So back in the long time ago, before we were even us, uh, our, our forebears would, would see a shape off in the distance. And they would squint at it, couldn't quite make it out. And they would say, they could either conclude it was a bear or it was a rock. And if it, uh, and, and some of them were like, oh, it's a bear, and they would run off. And then there were the optimists, and they would say, it's just a rock. And you know what? Most of the time it was just a rock, but every now and then it was a bear. And when it was a bear, it was, it was the optimist that got eaten. And so we're the 
descendants of all those cowardly creatures that always assumed it was a bear and ran away. Ah, a bear. And uh, and that's who we are. That's what's so deeply ingrained in us. We uh, look at change and look at the unknown fearfully. And so I begin with an acknowledgement of that because we come back quite honestly. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is our bias. And then I say uh, the, the one thing that doesn't change is human nature. And that uh, really doesn't. And so I read a lot of history. And uh, history, I think, shows us for what we are. And I then try to combine those two things and uh, try to apply them to the current situation. Right on. Okay, so you look backward and you think now, think about human nature. What would you describe as human nature? You write about this in your book, so I'm, I know that this is something you've given some thought to. Um, I think people have a notion of human nature, but I think your thinking is that we are deceiving ourselves. We have a different, uh, there are some different motivations at work. I don't know that we're great at self-reflection. When you read these books um, from two, 2,000 years ago that uh, they're caricatures of people or uh, even dramas, uh, they're instantly recognizable. You know, I don't know. It's hard to even conceive of how different our world is today than, say, even William Shakespeare's time. And yet Iago or Lady Macbeth or Macbeth or... These characters are just instantly recognizable to us, and uh, and I think that is us. I think there, it, it, we aren't caricatures. Uh, we are, um, I don't know, deeply nuanced, and 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 when we have all these different passions and all these different things, and almost every explanation of of us is an oversimplification, mm -hmm. and so it, it's easy to be dogmatic. And, you know, I think it kind of takes everybody because you need, you need conservatives and you need liberals because you've got people who are like, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we did this? And then you have people who are like, oh, be careful. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> and um, then you have these and these, and you have all these different people. And it's easy to say, whatever you are, it's easy to say, I wish the world was just me, people like me. But that isn't really how we get to where we are. I'm, I will jump ahead. Although that's how dictators think. We've had plenty of those throughout history. Yeah. People are like, my way or the highway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, actually, I will, t I will, I, I will tell a, a story that's not going to sound germane at all. Um, I was a Boy Scout. And when you're a Boy Scout, you go to summer camp. And when you go to summer camp, uh, you take merit badge classes. And I was a nerd. I I was a nerd. Uh, that may surprise people, but that is uh, true. And uh, one year I saw a, a nerdy merit badge on the list. It was bookkeeping. And I was like, that's what I want to do at summer camp is learn accounting. So I signed up for the bookkeeping merit badge. And I got there with six other Boy Scouts. And uh, was told there was no such thing as a bookkeeping merit badge. It was a typo and that we had all signed up for beekeeping. <laughs> and that is the true story of how I became a beekeeper. And what I learned about bees is that bees are a superorganism. That, the, mm -hmm. that uh, bees are creatures made up of cells, but that the collective group of bees isn't just a big pile of bees. It is actually a, a, a biological entity. It's like a uh, it has, hive, the hive. 
Uh, well, yeah, it, and it has a memory, and it has desires, and it has different priorities, and it's just biologically different. Uh, bees, for instance, are cold-blooded animals. Uh, they don't regulate their body temperature. Beehives, on the other hand, hold their body temperature at 97 degrees, uh, very much like a human. Mm. And uh, and so it is an emergent entity. And I began to wonder if humans were likewise. You know, we're made of cells, and we're emergent. Now, that, take me back. This is back when you're a Boy Scout at summer camp, and you were supposed to take a bookkeeping class, but now you're taking a beekeeping class because they're so similar. And you have this epiphany about humanity at that moment. Um, there, what, like not, 11 not years then. old? No, not then. But it was from the bees. I read okay. a legend once that when a beekeeper dies, you're supposed to go out and tell the bees. And they did that when Queen Elizabeth passed away because there were the royal hives. And they went and said, well, the, the queen is dead. Um, and I wondered. And so the the assumption was that uh, the bees were mined. And it's interesting if you take the number of of uh, neurons in a bee, it's brain, very small, size of a grain of salt, but you multiply it by the number of bees in the hive, it's something approximate to the human human brain. And I wondered if the bees really did, and the hive really did understand it. Um, and, and you know, a bee only lives two or three weeks, yeah. but uh, a beehive might live 100 years. And that's like you. Your cells don't live very long, but you do. And so I wondered if collectively humans form another entity, not metaphorically, not in a touch-feely way, but in a, in a literal biological sense, does a group of humans form a new consciousness and a new brain? And I think they do. And I named well, it. Well, then building on that idea, Cora. you might, uh, that brings us to, that brings us to artificial general intelligence, right? So many people are speculating about that right now, mm -hmm. the notion that we can create a super intelligence. <laughs> And if I'm gonna, if I can borrow your bee analogy, just as you're saying, there's a beekeeper who has a relationship with the beehive, and the beehive is composed of lots of individuals. Uh, you're saying the humanity as a whole is kind of like a beehive, and I wonder if the AGI will emerge as a beekeeper. Is that where you're heading with this? Yes and no. <laughs> the the yes part of it is I do think collectively humans form an emergent intellect um, because. That intellect can do things no human can do. That intellect can make a smartphone, but there's no human on the planet who can make a smartphone. There's nobody who can make a smartphone, and yet somehow smartphones single individual. Correct. It's a, yeah. a, a, a that's an old essay by a man named Leonard Reed called "I Pencil," where he pointed out nobody can make a pencil. On the other hand, it's it's no. I used to host a podcast on artificial intelligence, and I would ask uh, every one of my 118 guests if they believed it was possible. And uh, all but three said, yes, of course. Uh, but three said no. And I would actually be one of the, I would be the fourth one of those. I don't believe general intelligence is possible. And for a starting point, we don't really know or agree on the definition of intelligence, like human intelligence. We can't seem to get to grips with it. And, and, the, intel and the definitions I've seen, at least from the tech community, are so narrow because they leave out so much of human experience, you know, say body intelligence or emotional intelligence, for instance, those are just two starters. Yesterday, oh, well, someone wrote me a question. It's about consciousness, really. I mean, we don't understand what consciousness is. I mean, how can we, if we don't know what it means for humanity, how can we actually describe what it means for artificial intelligence? Exactly. And not just describe it, but then build it in a fab. 
right. <laughs> yeah. um, program it. But that's yeah, exactly right. We know exactly what consciousness is. Like we, there's a definition to the word. It's the experience of being you. It's mm-hmm. a, a thermometer can measure temperature, but you can feel warmth and whatever that delta is. Uh, but it is true that we do not know how it it comes about. And you don't even have to go like the whole spiritual route to conclude it isn't possible to build conscious or conscious machines. You just have to believe there's some emergent quality to us that we cannot engineer with. We can that is not able to be duplicated with ones and zeros. And if you believe that. Uh, then I think general intelligence is impossible. I don't. I don't believe fundamentally pe- that people are machines. Um, and uh, and if we're not machines, then that means no machine will ever be able to be built that can do what people do. Now, Byron, I want to I want to go back and, and uh, underscore something you just mentioned. You use the term emergence. I think it's a very important term. It's in your book. In your book, you talk about humanity. You talk about people how we're composed of some 30 or 40 trillion cells. And somehow from that collection of cells, this thing emerges that we think of as self. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then maybe we can make the connection to how that might happen with a computer. So emergence is a phenomenon that uh, where the whole of something takes on attributes that the parts do not have. Um, A clock, for instance, no gear can keep time, but collectively all the gears together keep time. Um, There are two kinds of it. One of them is you can look at that clock and say, ah, it's very interesting, but I see how it works. And uh, we call that weak emergence. And then there's a concept called strong emergence, which uh, many people say doesn't exist, that it's uh, magical thinking. But it is a form of emergence where not only can we not figure out how it keeps time or whatever the the, uh, equivalent is, uh, it is not deducible from the interaction of the parts. And often, if people are pressed and say, give me an example of strong emergence, they would say consciousness, that there is no there is no definition of matter that uh, accounts for it being able to experience anything. Those two worlds just don't intersect. There is no physics that will explain why something can experience something. There's a thought experiment called the problem of Mary. Uh, It's very short. And it's about a hypothetical person named, it's not my creation, but it's about a hypothetical person named Mary who lives in a room where there's only black, white, and gray and spends her entire life um, only seeing black, white, and gray. And yet uh, she has uh, not just an encyclopedic knowledge about color, but a godlike knowledge about color. She understands everything about color, about how light hits the eye and the cones and and all of that. And the question, and, the, and then the, the the setup is: one day she opens the door, she steps outside, she sees something's red. Did she learn anything in that experience? So you might say no, she didn't. You just said she knows everything about color, so she didn't learn anything. But there's another way of thinking that says that the experience of something is different than the knowledge of something. And whatever that difference is, that's consciousness. And that would be a strong emergent phenomenon because you can't ever know what it is to experience red. You can only experience it. Wow. Right. Big stuff. There's a, there's a lot more for us to dig into there. So you, you are great at dropping mind bombs that go off later on in the conversation. 
But but let's let's if you don't mind, let's just bring it right back to AI. Um, uh, Miss Metaverse, take it away. Yeah. So Byron, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into AI? Was it you know inspired by your book? You know your your last book, which was uh, the Fourth Age. You know, uh, we all have a copy. I have a copy. Rob has a copy. I mean, it's a great book. And, uh, you know, it brings up these topics, everything from robots to conscious computers. And, you know, is it? do you believe that uh, part of you wanted to get into AI so you could see if it was possible? Probably. I mean, I was I got into computers at a very young age and I was right at that generation that. Kind of came up with it like. It was a learnable, and then there was an advance and an advance, and I could kind of keep up with it. And so I, I always felt uh, akin to it. The Fourth Age isn't a book about my beliefs. I don't. I don't even. I don't hide them. But there's. I don't think anybody can infer what I believe from it. It is a philosophy book about artificial intelligence. Uh, I'm not supposed to say that. That evidently does not cause them to fly off the shelf. Um, but it really is a reflection on what is the difference between people and machines, if anything. I wrote another book about what's the difference between people and animals, if anything. But this was a book about why people are different than machines, or, or, or they are not. Uh, because I was really intrigued by how different the narratives about artificial intelligence are. Everybody listening will know there are people who think it's, you know, going to it's an existential threat. It's going to kill us all. And there are people who think it's going to save us all and everything's going to be wonderful. And and yet there, in both cases, people who know a lot about the topic. And so how do they come to different conclusions? I think they come to different conclusions, not because they have different knowledge, but because they have different beliefs. And those beliefs mm -hmm. are really about what people are. And so um, that's what I wrote that book about, is trying to figure out what we, what we are. Are we machines? And that's why I would always ask my um, 118 guests what intelligence was. And really, the last thing I'll say on this, uh, I, I don't want to drone on about it, but you mentioned earlier we don't agree on what intelligence is. That's very true. We don't actually have agreement on why what artificial, what the word artificial means in artificial intelligence. Does it mean it's uh, artificial because we make it? Or does it mean it's artificial because it's not real. Like artificial flowers aren't actually flowers. They just look like them. And so there's not agreement on whether it's artificial in the sense that it's actually intelligence that we made or it's something that can imitate intelligence, but it isn't really intelligent. And the, the man who coined the term artificial intelligence regretted it. He said it set too high of a bar for what he was thinking about. And uh, and it's 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 an unfortunate term. It's a really unfortunate term because when I say the word um, pool, p o o l, did you just think of the game pool or did you think of a swimming pool? Those things have nothing to do with each other. And AI is like that. There's artificial intelligence that's in the your spam filter in your email that filters out the spam. That's got an AI in it. And then you go to a movie. Ex Machina or her, or you watch Star Trek and you see Commander Data, and that's AI. And then you think, is my spam filter going to become that? And uh, they're, they're not the same thing, even. The word doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean those two things. So stemming from that simple misunderstanding, we get to very large misunderstandings and disagreements. 
Yeah, the, the Doomers actually believe that the spam filter is going to someday rise up and uh, organize and connect and get agency and kill us somehow. I'm not quite sure how that might happen, but that's that's their scenario. We hear about it a lot. Actually, these days we're hearing about all the time. What you're saying is that these things arise from belief, from not just a divergent understanding of what words mean or what the poorly defined concepts mean. Uh, you're saying that actually below all that stuff, there's this hum- very human thing called belief, belief systems that operate, that govern. And we're seeing that today in Silicon Valley. A lot of people who aren't in the technology industry might not be aware. There's kind of a religious war happening between uh, AI doomers, the people who are saying, slow down, or this is going way too fast. We don't know what we're building here. And the accelerationists who are uh, a group of principally libertarians, originally libertarians, but people who are like, Pedal to the metal. Let's go to the go to the max. Move faster. Let's break everything and see what happens. It'll be great. Um, now, presumably, there's a middle ground in the middle. Though I'm having trouble myself defining it. Um, what I'm finding is everybody seems to be part of this camp. This is part of what happened at uh, OpenAI is this split between the Doomers and the Accelerationists because there was a group of people who were saying, "Hey, we're moving way too fast." Uh, and those are the group that agitated uh, for the removal of the CEO. Of course, it didn't work. It didn't stick. You know, they they did fire him, but only for a couple of days. And now he's back. And I yeah. suppose he's ferreting out all the doomers. Uh, and he's uh, he's bringing a new board of directors together that is very much about put the pedal to the metal. So I think we can see clearly what OpenAI is going to do. That's going to have an impact on other AI companies as well, because they're the leader, uh, the most prominent company in the space. It's highly competitive. And so to compete, you're going to need to step up your game. So I think we can expect in 2024, we're going to see a lot more fundraising uh, for much bigger investment in AI research in the process of accelerating it. And what's your take on that? I mean, that that seems to be what's happening right now at the end of 2023. I agree. <laughs> Great. Great. Well, okay. We I are- mean, look, there, there was the letter that was written. Uh, you know, the letter that was uh, got 30,000 signatories. Um, the, from the Future of Life Institute, I think it was. That wrote yes, this, the pause. Uh, the pause for six months, right. And it had a quote in it. I'm going to get it wrong because it's not in front of me, but it's in boldface. It's the quote, and it says that the system should not be pursued until we, uh, are, until we can know that they're going to help more than they're going to hurt. Yeah. And it seems like uh, a, a reasonable thing, except when you realize uh, there's not a single piece of technology that could have ever passed that test. That's right. Uh, the, um, the the you could never have proven that the the printing press would be better than 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 cause more good than harm. Well, and don't uh, forget the printing press caused 200 years of incredibly yeah. violent war in Europe, exactly. whereby yeah. about a third of the population of Europe ended up dying. Yeah. So that's kind of your that's that's, and, that's and kind you, of like the scary scenario here with AI, yeah. right? Like, and you can't also uh, know it about the internet. I mean, we don't even know today if the internet's better. You yeah, know, even even that. social media, which is such a new phenomenon, the jury's still out. Like, does it really destabilize yeah. democracy? Sure, seems like that from this perspective, yeah. but others would debate that quite hotly. I hear you. I, is- I don't worry about it the way other people do, uh, but I'm just again, it's that whole multiverse of voices. I'm just, I have a perspective, and other people have ones, and I think it's that synthesis that. So guides us on the right path. I don't worry about it because I, what do we do? What is, how do we do AI today? It's very uh, simple piece of technology. We take large amounts of data about the past and we use compute to look for patterns. And then we use those patterns to project the future. 
And that's all it does. I think everybody can agree that's all it does. Uh, I mean, it's written, uh, open, um, chat GPT is written in Python. Uh, you can learn it in a week. Uh, you can look at the code and you can say, aha, it's looking for patterns. Um, the, the problem is humans see patterns where there aren't. You know, we can look up at the clouds and say, oh, I see a horsey. And so when it starts talking, people are like, ah, I hear a horsey. You know, I, I see an intelligence in that. I see a pattern. I see uh, a shape that isn't there. And I think that idea of looking at data about the past and making projections of the future, I don't think it's a, I think it's a powerful tool, but it isn't that powerful. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it only works where the future is like the past. That's why I can identify cats because a cat yesterday looked like a cat did well tomorrow. But and it, it still has, gets it wrong. It still gets it wrong yeah. a significant percentage of the time. But but to defend the Doomer perspective, I'm not a Doomer myself, but, the, you know, um, say Ilya Suskover at OpenAI, he's one of the chief scientists mm -hmm. there and played a principal role in all the drama, you know, a week ago. Uh, right. he, he has been out front saying, look, our model, even though it's just an LLM with all the all the limitations that large language models are known to have, he said there's something else happening. It's beginning to form its own sense of the world. It's beginning to build its own internal model of the world. It's starting to identify relationships between concepts. I don't know if this is true. I don't know if I agree with it. I'm not endorsing it. It's simply what I've heard he said. Um, that viewpoint then suggests that there is something emergent happening when you get highly complex systems working with huge amounts of data, that they begin to develop properties, characteristics, and capabilities that were never programmed into them. The best example is ChatGPT itself writing code. Uh, no one programmed it to write software, um, and now it can make web pages. Uh, and so as a result, you're starting to see people say, well, gosh, if that continues, if it persists and we build bigger models, I don't think anyone's arguing that today's LLMs are gonna become emergent uh, you know, conscious machines. But they're saying, if we continue down this path, then inevitably we're going to get to a point where a machine has more capability than people. On that tantalizing note, I have to I have to hold here for just one second because we're going to take a little break. And before we take a break, uh, we always like to ask our guests a couple quick fire questions. And so, uh, Byron, if you're ready, this is the quick fire round. Got it. What is your first memory or experience of science fiction? Could be a book or a TV show or a movie. Star Trek. Cool. Um, is there a futurist or someone who's thinking about the future who inspired you in your career? Matt Ridley. Right on. Um, <laughs> is there a particular forecast that you recall uh, that profoundly affected your, your career or caused you to make a different decision? Gene Roddenberry once said, in the future, there will be no hunger and there will be no greed and all the children will know how to read. And I wondered if that was true. Great. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We are talking to Byron Reese here at The Futurists, and we'll be back in just a minute after these messages. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and The Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show.
Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with my co-host, Miss Metaverse, Katie King. And today we are talking to Byron Reese. Byron's the author of a number of books. Uh, the Fourth Age is the one we've been talking about. He's also got a new book in the works. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But Byron, you were just telling me during the break your motivation for writing this book. Recap that for us again. Oh, writing the, I have a book coming out in December called We Are Agora. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's about how humanity functions as a single superorganism, like a beehive. And uh, and what I think is interesting about it is it tries to answer a big why question. I consider myself a science writer. That's what I am. I, I write science. And science never answers why questions. It's, a, it's, a, it's really good at how or when or what. But why? It like changes the subject real quickly. So I wrote a book, a scientific answer to the question, why are we here? And is what is the Agora theory? What does it mean exactly? You're an emergent creature, right? A bunch of cells come together and make you, and you have these capabilities like you have a sense of humor, but none of your cells have a sense of humor. And you're not actually a roommate with your cells, right? You're somehow a pattern superimposed on them. The question is, is there one more level up higher? Do a bunch of humans come together and, and form a living creature? If if we do, we wouldn't be able to perceive it any more than your, your cells can't perceive you. You operate on different time scales at different scales. So there would be a creature that is real, that thinks and breathes, um, that we can't perceive. And so then you say, well, how would you know it's there? Why is that not just an article of faith or something? But you can say certain things. You can say in superorganisms, um, the parts can't survive on their own. And so you would say, well, can humans survive on our own? Could you drop one of us on a desert island? We would thrive. Um, you would say in a superorganism, all the parts must conform. Otherwise, they are kicked out. You know, if a bee starts acting weird or an ant starts acting weird, they kill it. Uh, do we do that? See, these are answerable questions. And, and as I would line them all up, I would say, yes, we are a superorganism. There is this creature. I named it Agora after the... A Greek marketplace where all the like talking and debate and energy was, and I think it's real. And then you have to ask the question, well, what does it want? What does it want? Now, what happens if humanity reaches this point of mass consciousness where we realize that we are a super organism? How could that affect the way that we are working together and, and creating a, a unified vision of the future? That's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, there's this thing called the overview effect where people who go into space, they see the earth for the first time and they have this new sense of the wholeness of humanity that we're all, you know, one. And, uh, I'm trying to create the overview effect in this book without sending people to space. I'll tell a, a very short story. There's a 1947, there was a man who committed suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And there happened to be an person who studied suicide at Stanford, who went up to just kind of look the situation over. And they went to the guy's apartment and he had left a suicide note, even though he had no family and nothing was wrong with him, but he had left a note addressed to no one. And the note said, I'm going to walk to the bridge now. If one person smiles at me along the way, I will not jump. And I hate to say it, 
Aldous Huxley at the end of his life said, after you know 45 years of research, I'm, I'm sad to say the only thing I can advise people is to try to be a little nicer to each other. And, and I don't think he should have been sad to say that. Superorganisms work because all the parts mesh together. The, you don't have half the beehive plotting against the other half. Right. And uh, humanity can do anything. We can do anything uh, if we work together. And and I think the way to do that is to have that overview effect. You don't have to, the arm doesn't have to like the leg, but the arm needs to realize the its fate is tied to the fate of the leg. Like you're part of the same body and, uh, and you cannot win and the leg lose. That is not a possible outcome. Right. I mean, look what at binds uh, it all together. Everything. What what <laughs> it's, binds it's it all together? Surprising. What makes the body work? What makes the what makes the leg and the arm uh, cooperate? What makes the beehive cooperate? Because that's not happening. The beekeeper doesn't govern that part of the. That beehive. is right. It's the individual actions of the bees, and 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 it's a great burden to release from people because there are all these people out there who think their job is to save the world. And that it rides on them, and it doesn't. What what your what one one's job is is to to be kind, uh, to be helpful, and to to other people. Do you remember the story of the plane that crashed in the Andes in 1972 with the rugby players on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah the book Alive. Yeah. Yes. So I read a story that one of the guys. Nando was listening to a radio. He was the only person listening to the radio, and he heard they had given up the search for them. And they, you know, they they were presumed dead. So he ran back and told everybody. He said, "I have great news! I have great news! They've given up the search." And the people said to him, "Why is that good news?" And he said, "Because it means we're going to get out of this on our own." When I read that, I wondered if he really said it. And and what a, what an age we live in that five minutes later I had his email address. And I emailed him. And the next morning he wrote me back and said, yeah, that's exactly what I said. I hmm. said it because um, I, it, was, it was terrible news. And I just, you know, did what I could. But the thing that I think he got wrong is it wasn't terrible news. It was great news. Because up until that point, they they would look to the sky for their salvation. They were like, there'll be a rescue plane. Come and get us. Mm-hmm. And then when they realized there is not going to be a rescue plane, then he was right. No hand of God reached down and saved those rugby players. They saved themselves. And, uh, and it's that realization that I think uh, is our, our path forward is – Carl Sagan said it. He said, in the vastness and emptiness of space, there's no hint that help is going to come from anywhere uh, to save us. It's up to ourselves. And uh, and I think he got it right. I think he said the same exact thing Nando said, and some which people, is it's up to us. Some people say that the AI, I say a, you know, a, a general intelligence uh, will serve That's that. the function. airplane. Yeah, the, the airplane you think is going to save you. It'll be kind of like a deus ex machina. It's going to come forward and, and kind of solve all of humanity's problems. So, like, pedal to the metal, keep doing what we're doing, uh, keep having a lousy distribution of wealth, and keep degrading the environment and exploiting people because some AI, some greater intelligence will come along and set us straight. And what I'm hearing you say in that, that, that story is the airplane's never coming. 
And the super intelligence that's going to save humanity is never going to happen. Uh, so we better start figuring out how to do this stuff ourselves and figure out how to get down the mountain. Yeah, but I, I just recently co-wrote an article about the four billion year history of Chat GPT, <laughs> and uh, and what it is about is that uh, for three billion years, life had there was one place to store data, and that was DNA. And it's a it's it is a data storage device. It's all it is. It's not alive. It's just a book written in four letters, and it's universal to all life. And then we got brains, and that was the second place to store data. And then we got writing, and that was the third place to store data. But that's all it is. It's data storage. But as that propagated, it just got all scattered out. And you know, search engines still do that. You do a search, and it says, in a quarter of a second, I found twenty million answers to that question. Right? Like that. somehow that's bragging when what you want is one answer to the question. And I think what these LLMs do is they bring all that knowledge back together and they do create a single intellect, a single repository of human knowledge. And that is incredibly powerful. Um, if there is to be found a cure for cancer or aging or clean energy, it will be found in that. Um, so I don't dismiss them. They're wonderful, but although although there's a danger there, right? Because uh, what the large language model is doing and synthesizing all that information, those those many many pages of information, into a single succinct summary, is a kind of abstraction. And when you abstract away uh, from the nuance and the gnarly complex aspects, you're simplifying and you're leaving something out, right? And now the problem here is we don't know exactly how the AIs work. We don't know exactly how ChatGPT arrives at it's the particular synthesis it's given us. And in fact, sometimes it's wrong. And if you notice it's wrong, you can say that, you can actually ask it to check its work and then it'll very politely apologize and say, oh yeah, and it'll take another attempt. And sometimes it takes two or three attempts before it gets the right answer. Um, now that's okay, because at this stage we know the right answer uh, sometimes. And so we can we can correct it gently like that. My concern is if we grow more and more reliant, and, and I mean, there are businesses now that are barreling down the path towards this building in this dependency. Uh, we're going to bake in a dependency on an unknowable system, a black box, if you will, that comes up with answers that are mostly right, but sometimes grievously wrong. And we're not going to know the difference. And I wonder about but that. Would you would you say that's any different? What you, I was just listening to what you said and, mm -hmm. and asking, wouldn't all of that apply to a book? Like yeah, and it would apply to a human is, It well, is a right? synthesis, and it is uh, an abstraction. And sure. there are sure. people who build businesses based on this book. And I mean, sure. we can't sure. know everything. Sure. We can only but know nobody something. Nobody attributes mythical power to a book. Nobody uh, tries to say no, that a book I'm not is sure more intelligent than all of humanity combined, right? True. Uh, you know, we're pretty candid about the fact that uh -huh. some books are crap and some are great and uh, some are useful for a moment, but some are not always useful, right. you know, in not every situation. Um, and that's true with people too, right? What is a book? A book is just a, a physical a manifestation person. of someone's thought process, right? So it's, it's just a moment in time. Even that author probably eventually changes their mind in some ways as they grow. Um, the difference here is that we understand that. Right, because we we are we humans, so we can kind of imagine the other person with the same set of weaknesses and flaws, and uh, or or a different set, but but similar weaknesses and flaws. So we're not going to place too much faith. I mean, humanity has done that with books in the past; it hasn't always worked out to everyone's advantage uh, to to play to to run an entire society based on a book. There's still some folks who would want to push that, promote that, 
Um, my concern here is that we're building a thing and we're telling ourselves this myth. Uh, we're telling ourselves this story that this handmade thing, this human-built thing is somehow superior to us. And therefore, we can relinquish decision-making to it and do that safely. And I think that safely part is, is the concern. Again, I'm not a doomer, but I understand their perspective, right? Because if you push that out to an extreme where we've got an extremely smart intelligence that's making a huge number of decisions on our behalf, so much so and so efficiently that we've relinquished control over aspects of you know complex systems, maybe even society, that we're building in path dependency for a system that A, might not be aligned to our values and B, might not be something we can entirely trust. And it might just make a mistake. It doesn't have to have intent. It might just make a grievous blunder. What do you think about that scenario? And when you hear that, how would you respond? I, I, all of that is true. But won't that come out in the learning? Wouldn't people have said that about early books? I mean, aren't the fact that you can even articulate that worry right now, and the fact that many people articulate that worry means we're kind of onto it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at I, it. I'm the look. I'm not. I'm not the one who's afraid of AI. Like, I think if you have a problem with the right. AI, unplug the machine, right? It's, it's like being afraid of a refrigerator. It's it's a utility. It's an appliance. It's a device. It does something, and it does. If it doesn't do the thing you intended it to do, turn it off. I, I know that's drastically oversimplified. Uh -huh. I am very aware of that. But I guess the point I'm making is that we're we still have agency in this, and we can monitor and decide. Um, but yet there are people. There's a large number of people who are out there drumming up these gloomy scenarios. Now, Byron, let me offer this. Some people um, say that there's a motivation behind them, and it's not entirely altruistic. That the motivation behind creating doomsday scenarios about artificial intelligence is itself a malicious intent. Uh, it's designed to scare people. It's designed to bully people. It's designed to maybe reduce people to a fear so that they're unable to make intelligent decisions, um, that our emotions, uh, when we hear those scary stories, our emotions will take over and bypass the intellectual filters in the brain so that we make gut instinct uh, ideas. Basically, the summary there is, if you scare people enough about the future, you can bulldoze, bulldoze them into submission and compliance. What do you think about that perspective? That's a human intelligence that's being malicious in that scenario. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't doubt the intentions of the people who are worried about it. And like I said at the beginning of our chat, I think. I think it's the collective conversation that guides us on the path. So I'm glad there are people who are like, whoa, hold on a second. This thing, people trust it. And I mean, I'm glad there are people. And then I'm glad there are people who are saying every day you delay that is a day you delay uh, the cure for cancer. I'm glad. And, it, and I don't know that we have to pick a path. I think we can be okay that the story of humanity is that it's a messy path forward. And yeah. we need all of that but we're going to be okay, I think, because we have 10,000 years. Now, look, there was a time when we were down, we think, to uh, based on the genetic diversity between any two humans, we, we can kind of figure out the population bottleneck. And we think there was a time we were down to a few hundred mating pairs of humans. That's it. And if that were true, and that would have been a time we had no technology, no writing, no governments, no walls, nothing. No medicine. And, and then you say, well, how did we get through that? Did we get through it because of a dog-eat-dog -dog view of the world? Every, every person for 
themselves. Is that no? We didn't because we find the bones of people who were cared for, even though they couldn't contribute to society. We find all this evidence. We got through it because we worked uh, together. Yeah. So the dissent and, and the disagreement and the even the fractious infighting about artificial intelligence. That's just humanity's process for coming to a collection. And it, and it, and it works. It's, it's it messy. It's not a straight line. We veer jaggedly back and forth. We go, we take two steps forward and one step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned Matt Ridley as an inspiration, uh, the author of the rational human, uh, the, the rational optimist, mm-hmm. uh, a great term, by the way. And, um, and that's kind of his perspective, right? It's like, look, uh, it's not a straight line and consensus is never easy to achieve. Sometimes it's an ugly and embarrassingly awkward process. But life is getting better. By every metric, life is getting incrementally better over the long haul. Yes, of course, we have setbacks. Yes, of course, there are going to be wars and famine and disasters along the way as we try new things. Um, and, uh, and and we don't always manage that. Uh, we're going to do it wrong sometimes. We're human. So that's your perspective, that you share that view of this messy path forward. But it is ultimately a path of progress. Yes. Great. Okay, now it's time for us to go futuristic. Uh, we've 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 talked about and you've demonstrated for us your your approach, which is a very um, neutral assessment of different arguments, different perspectives. You're able to understand them. You can even recapitulate those arguments uh, in a faithful way, but you don't actually seem to hold those views. In other words, you understand the viewpoints and you can articulate them, but you don't necessarily espouse them or or push them. I want to know about your views about the future. Right now, what we love to do at the end of the show is say, give us a forecast. Tell us what's coming. Uh, you know, since the show has largely been about artificial intelligence and beehives, uh, maybe we can use that as a starting point. Um, what do you think is going to help us govern this beehive, this particular beehive planet Earth in the future? What does that look like in 2030 and 2050? The Fourth Age was is a book I wrote, like you just said. I just tried to lay out all the different arguments without weighing in. Because if if I'm somebody who believes that the future is made by a bunch of different people, then I don't particularly hold my my opinion in uh, all that much high regard. I'm another voice in that chorus, and um, and so I have an intuition. I I I think. If you look, if there is a 4 billion year history, chat GPT, I'm really struck by the fact that human civilization is so young, 8,000, 10,000 years for um, agriculture, 5,000 years for writing, 5,000 years for writing. How did that, how did we go 200,000 years without any progress and then all this progress very quickly? I think if you take that graph and you say, well, how much data can you put in DNA? Then how much data can you store in a brain? And how much data can you store in a library? Then how much data can you put on the internet? And then you synthesize it. I think those two lines overlap. I think they are, I do think knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. It's a power to make our life better. And the degree to which we are consolidating the story of, of humanity is that we learn and forget, learn and forget, learn and forget. Mm-hmm. We save very little. Plato, we we saved, but evidently his, you know, Aunt Martha had a great recipe for turtle soup, and that's lost. And 99.9999999, as many nines as you want, a percent of all other human knowledge was lost when those people died. And now, for the first time, we have a collective memory on this planet. 
We we are putting sensors up that record everything, and we're saving every cause and effect. And I do think that that uh, will very quickly vault us to a utopia that we have all uh, dreamed about. I think that there'll be a billion people on a billion planets, each empowered to live their best possible life. And I, I think we're so close to that, we don't realize it because technology doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles. And when you get to a certain point, one doubling is, it took 5,000 years to make your laptop. In two years, you're going to have one twice as good as that. And then in two years, twice as good as that. And then two years, twice as good as that. Um, that to me says this is all about to change very quickly. The the last thing I'll say on this, and I know I'm running long, but you're great. I show I base my optimism on one one thing, and it's a Radio Shack ad from 1996. Uh, this is the foundation of your the core principle of your father. I'm afraid it is. You know, you dig away at that onion enough, and you come to this Radio Shack ad, the Radio full Shack page ad. ad that ran in 1996, a year is important because 10 years after that ad ran, your phone did everything in that. It was mm. your camcorder. It was your answering machine. It was your computer. It was your music device. It was everything. And if you had told people in 1996, hey, in 10 years, you're going to carry, that's when the iPhone came out, 06. In 10 years, you're going to carry a supercomputer in your pocket. It'll be free with a two-year contract. Um, there'll be 4 million things it can do that cost 99 cents each in the app store. You would have said, no, 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 no. Does not happen like that. It does not move that quickly. It does not. And I don't think anybody listening needs me to tell them that the world is moving vastly faster than the olden days of 1996, the good old days. Uh, we live in this time when a doubling of all our aggregate technology is an enormous thing. And if you if you believe we're fundamentally good, which go back 10,000 years when there were a few hundred of us and how we watched out for each other, if you believe that that's our true self, then the power that that technology is going to bring us will allow us to build this world where there'll be no hunger and there'll be no greed and all the children will know how to read. Fabulous. All right, Byron Reese, thank you so very much for joining us this week on The Futurists. It's been a great pleasure to have this conversation with you. You've, uh, oh, you've, thank you. you've dropped so many mind bombs that are going to continue to go off for me for the next day or two. So thank you for that. And I hope our listeners feel the same way. Katie, thanks for joining me too on The Futurist this week. It's great to have you back. Oh, pleasure uh, as I wanna, always. I want to thank all of our folks who helped make the show. Uh, our producer, uh, Lisbeth Severance, our engineer, Kevin Hirschhorn. And Byron, tell me, where can people find out more about you? And uh, when is your new book coming out? And where will that be available? I'm the easiest person in the world to find. I'm, I'm Byron Reese. I got on early enough. I'm the, the so I'm Byron Reese at Gmail. If you want to email me, I'm byronreese.com. I'm uh, and and the the, the Gore book's coming out in December. And Great. then I hope, uh, yeah, this year, this month, this the coming uh, seven days from now. I didn't realize that it's oh, been so long. Wow. Okay, great. So give us that actual date. So is that the fifteenth of December? The twelfth. The 12th of December, your book, The Agora Effect, will be available. Yes. Great. All right, folks. Well, awesome. there you have it. 
Um, I can personally endorse Byron's reading because Katie and I both read his books and we were inspired by it. Such a pleasure yes. to have you with us today. Thank, Thank you very you. much for joining us on The Futurist. And folks, we'll be back next week with yet another person who is thinking and building about the building of the future. And until then, Katie, until then, we'll see you in the future. <laughs> For those so, who've been listening, here's a bonus, a little bonus parting thought from Byron Reese. I wanted, I wrote a book about why we're here. And um, it started with the Gaia hypothesis, which uh, was put forth by a man named James Lovelock. And he said that the earth behaves all its living systems hold themselves in, in a homeostasis. The earth regulates itself. It holds itself within certain temperature bounds. The salinity of the oceans doesn't change over geologic time. The atmospheric uh, levels of oxygen don't change over geologic time. That it holds itself like that. He never really committed whether he thought the earth was a living creature or behaved like a living creature, but it's the same effect. Now, if it is either of those things, behaves like one or is, what would it want? Well, it would want presumably what all living things want. It would want to survive and it would want to reproduce. Hmm. And then you have to say, well, should it worry about surviving? And it's like, yeah, I mean, it should definitely worry about surviving. Uh, why? Because there are big rocks going to hit it. I don't know when, next Tuesday in a billion years, it's going to happen and it's going to wipe everything out. It just will happen. So what would it want? Well, it would need to build, it would need a creature that could protect it from that it would need um it would need a creature that that you had technology now i used to wonder why there was just one intelligent species on this planet i mean one really intelligent species and i think it's because intelligence is self-destructive i think it's a bad thing most all life isn't intelligent and it does just fine and i think intelligence uh is but Planets that don't evolve an intelligent species to protect them get hit by a rock. And planets that evolve many intelligent species, well, they blow themselves up because intelligence is so volatile. But there's this Goldilocks where if a planet evolves one, maybe it'll blow itself up, but maybe it won't. Maybe it will protect it. And that's how maybe it will blow itself up or maybe that one intelligence will protect it. So I think that's what we're here for. I think that's what Agora is. I, I think that's what ChatGPT is. I think it is this this thing that has been created to protect this planet from uh, destruction, to, to protect life. And that's uh, why we're here. Very good. Byron Reese, author, futurist, entrepreneur. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us on The Futurist. And folks, if you're interested, Byron is an excellent writer. His books are so approachable. They're written in a folksy and easy to understand tone. And yet he takes on some of the most complex topics that face humanity. I strongly recommend that you check out his writing and his book and his new book coming out on December 12th by author Byron Reese. Thanks for joining us this week on The Futurists. Thank you. Thanks, Byron. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.